0: Hey, Tracy, are you ready to do a proper commercial?
1: Rowan, I've never been more ready for anything in my entire gosh darn life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tracy, aren't you wondering what Harmony Metal is? I am. I
1: actually am. I don't know what that is.
0: (laughs) Harmony Metal is recycled sterling silver, and our friends at White Light Productions only
1: use Harmony Metal when they create their sea glass jewelry. Okay, now it's all coming back to me. And we talked about this before, and I appreciate that because it is so much better than ripping a hole into the earth to get more metal. We love white light production sea glass jewelry. Uh, As you know, we've talked about them on our podcast before, and you can check out their designs at www.seaglass.us.
0: They make beautiful sea glass and sterling silver jewelry using recycled and repurposed materials. Apparently, I just found this out. The aqua color in those earrings that I really like are made by cutting up mason jars and tumbling them into smooth sea glass.
1: I love that as someone who loves mason jars. The earrings I have are purple, which is beautiful. But what blew my mind when I went to their website is how many different colors of sea glass they have. And all of their ear wires are sterling silver, which I appreciate because I prefer to have sterling silver in my earrings sensitive little ears sensitive
0: ears (laughs) 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 they have so many styles find some for someone you love you know Tracy and I love to send mail because we are so heckin far apart from each other and their jewelry makes a perfect thoughtful gift that is
1: as good for your sensitive little ears as it is for the planet So check out Seaglass.us and be sure to use our code for 10% off. It is WF10. That's for our Willing and Fable listeners, WF10.
0: You officially have an excuse to go shopping. You're welcome. Be nice to yourself. Be nice to the human you have a crush on. Buy shiny jewelry for your dragon or your local mermaid so that they don't eat
1: you. White Light (laughs) Productions Seaglass Jewelry. Because your local mermaid is worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. Boom. (laughs) Add. Add.
0: These are the best episodes we have yet done because it is like turning our text thread into a proper real life hangout. Thank you, technology. It's, the it's best. amazing.
1: Whenever I see a message come in on that text thread, I know it's either going to be a delightful TikTok or something that makes me laugh or just a fun fact. Like that message is nothing but good times, good vibes. All day, every day.
0: Oh, we have to say our <laughs> our group text is named <laughs> Curse. And it has an illustration by Tracy. It's just, okay, here's the deal. <laughs> I put oh. into the group thread that I needed our group to be named, which mm-hmm. is because I needed it to be easier to text the group and also because I needed imagery I guess that's who I am. And Kaylee immediately she is on board.
1: Yeah, we both were. We're both like, Always. yeah, of course.
0: What is the name for a group of hags, she asks. <laughs> and I go, Haggis. That's all I got. That's all <laughs> my you would give me. And these two went on a proper journey for actual names.
1: I'm pretty sure I just watched this conversation happen. Of we, I was going to come in and say, isn't a group of crows a murder and then i see kaylee say isn't a group of crows a murder what about a group of hags is a curse which is brilliant so i participated in no way in this naming except for enjoying it
0: (laughs) so we immediately got on board with that i made the image a group of crows and tracy said you know i can do you one better and she just puts up there's a really cool picture of all of us drawn as like demons possessed by our better selves I don't know it's great I have never been so seen <laughs>
2: like when sometimes you know when other people like when
0: when you get people who draw you
2: it's that oh wow I really just don't see myself that way or like wow when I like look in the mirror that's not or when I think of myself I don't really see it's interesting that this is these are the features that this person sees and things like Tracy just gets it and I, I just, <laughs> I have never felt so seen. It was so cool. Okay, uh, I, I, I she's very talented. I just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm all agog.
0: I'm gonna let you in on a Tracy secret. Tracy, don't listen. Go away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> goodbye. Tracy gave you the red tinted like claw hands yeah. and that is like a cat blink, like a Tracy version of a like, <laughs> I love you. I care about you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not over here. I'm not
2: listening. I'm not. Wait, saying? this information it might change my life a little bit.
1: Really? Yes. I love, I love giving people like all of my, my characters that I draw, You'll you'll notice and you'll notice it in yours too. They always have red little noses. And if you see ears, like red ears, and then like red little fingers, fingertips, and it's just, yeah, it's like my slow blink. It's like the way cats slow blink when when they're happy. She I guess. says all of my characters, <laughs>
0: but for real, for real, she doesn't do it for
1: all the characters. She does it for the ones she really loves. I feel so,
0: I feel so special.
1: I'll take that. I didn't know that was a thing I did. Except I, I can see it. It's just fun. You just give them the cute little. You make them cute and blushing you make them cold you put them out in the
0: winter cold in no winter coat and you go come back to me when all of your extremities are red and frozen off
1: (laughs) can i tell you about the character that i'm creating for a campaign we're starting up again soon so we just finished casey's campaign that we were playing for for years and we needed to come up with characters for the next one and in that first campaign there is this character named sam who was a tengu or indeed a kenku so a bird boy just a a, a a man-sized bird. And he was our researcher, and he was scared of everything. And when he was in his chill, relax mode, he had his Hawaiian shirt. I loved this character. I, my character was obsessed with him. So the character I originally came up with for the next campaign, I'm calling Samson. And he is the opposite of Sam in that he is a hot, himbo bird boy. I, he's, he's a Strix. So in the Pathfinder Canon. I don't know if that's in DD, but he's like an owl man. So mm-hmm. I literally, I will share the picture online if you guys want it. I drew a shirtless, hot bird boy <laughs> smoking a cigarette for this campaign. Oh God, I'm I love so it. excited. I love it so much. So I know that
0: we say a himbo is the male version of a bimbo. I don't think it is. What is the female version of a himbo? I, and I think it's because bimbo already just has so much society put onto it just so much Mm -hmm. hate that you have to get through and himbo was made by people that love humans for these characteristics for people that embody these lovely characteristics it's not coming out of an insult
1: yeah himbo has very strong made by feminine or feminine presenting people energy to celebrate allies Mm -hmm. and bimbo came out of an insult to women It's very different energies. Himbo is, for those who don't know, himbo is him and bimbo combined into a word. And it's like a buff, hot dude who just is nice and respects women.
0: Brendan Fraser, the mummy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Rick O'Connell. Himbo. Thor. Himbo. Like, especially in Thor Ragnarok. That's peak himbo.
2: Yeah. Kronk from The Emperor's New Groove.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming to Himbo's 101. I am your teacher, Rowan Hall.
1: And I'm Tracy Harrison. Do you
0: want to introduce yourself or should oh, it's I me. introduce you? I, I was so focused on, I was thinking about
2: himbos. Uh, hi, I'm Kaylee, no thought, only himbo. Uh,
1: <laughs> Kaylee, no thought, himbo, only Bray. Yeah,
0: that's me. Hey everybody, I'm Kaylee Bray. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, mythology and himbos that make the world so (laughs) fascinating (laughs) okay tracy before you talk i'm gonna do it this week okay you ready
1: okay i'm so excited
0: if you want to support the podcast check out our website check out our merch look up willing and fable on patreon we would love for you to rate review or subscribe or stand in front of a mirror Whisper "Willing and Fable" three times in the dark with only a candle in your hands, and wait for one of the three of us to appear. Boop your sweet little nose, and then uh, go about the rest of your evening. <laughs> or you can just listen. We're so happy to have you. Any which way you want to do it.
1: Thank you. Oh, that was so good, Rowan. Amazing. Chef's kiss. Beautiful. You had that. The the just I stepped into the Twilight Zone energy that I want to bring into all of those. I loved it.
0: Tracy is the best because, like, hype man to the max. You don't even have to really do a good job. She'll, <laughs> she'll support
2: you. you did you. do a good job. You did.
1: You did do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that Kaylee and I have similar hype man energy. Where we just it's really are excited true. to be here. Yeah. We're just happy to be here and we'll compliment you for being here with us.
2: But it's always an honest compliment. I'm never going to give you, a, di- like a like, an insincere compliment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could trust You can trust me for that.
0: As we're running out into the world and interacting with people that we haven't for a while, I am saying the nice things that I think to the people that I'm thinking about. And um, so I've noticed some people are like, you're always so complimentary. Like, stop it. Thinking that I'm being egregious. I'm like, no, I just think a lot of nice things about you. And now I'm just saying them.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's weird to keep those things to yourself. I love that. You can do that to me anytime. It is, mm-hmm. like
0: why though you know it's 2021 we all survived a global pandemic everything is broken if if you have nice thoughts say nice thought yeah have nice thoughts say nice thought
1: <laughs> is now <laughs> what i'm going to put on a throw pillow in my house have nice thoughts say nice thought
2: <laughs> this is not an invitation to catcall strange women on the street in case anyone is who is listening thinks that that is what
0: uh, that that yeah, is yeah i said
1: have nice thought say nice thought <laughs>
0: nice not, thought nice thought nice thought right it's not have thought say thought that's different
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: hey have nice thought say nice thought Greenleaf geek edition
1: Ooh, Ooh yeah that one yes i want to ask kaylee another dm question okay because it's you know we get to have a real life professional dm in our presence what is the most shocked you've been by a player or at least one of the times that you were just like, oh no, <laughs> oh boy. Yikes. This, everything that I prepped gone eight pages ahead of where I was here. We are Or just anything that just three or four real loop.
2: Oh, I have to think about that. We have, we have a couple of players who are just the, I charge in their team. I charge in and, mm-hmm. um, there are times where I think I've planned for a player to do the I'm team we charge in and then somebody else does it before they do. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I have mm-hmm. I have planned for all of this to affect the person who usually kicks down the door." Oh, uh and every so often I'll be like, "Oh, okay. And Rowan now knows that's one of my tells. Of being like, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Anyway, uh, so that's that's definitely. I it's hard for me to pick out specific moments because uh, my short term and long term memory are both um, sometimes visit. I suppose not something I'm super familiar with as a concept. And I just, but I I remember those feelings viscerally of like mm-hmm. that was not the person.
0: I'd planned for you.
1: A good DM was like, that was not the person. Moving on. I'm going to forget about it. And now the story just went that way. And that's fine. Yeah,
0: this is just what happens. Have I mentioned Kaylee doesn't just kill off her characters? Thank goodness.
1: (laughs) Right. Oh,
2: but there's a a great moment that you did, Rowan, where you're like, let me, hey, can I use a portable hole to make a chimney and crawl up it into the dragon's lair instead of going through the door? And I remember (laughs) looking at you like technically probably not is that the best idea i've ever i've heard yeah Mm -hmm. so because you getting into the lair before the villain gets to do their monologue before any of these things happen before like Mm -hmm. i needed to i wanted to give you that opportunity without ruining the not ruining but like Without losing some of that, like, drama that had been pre-programmed when you guys all went through the door. And I think I was able to do it. But there was that moment of, oh,
0: okay, yeah. (laughs) I only was able to justify that. Thank God. Kaylee is so tolerant. Because I suggested it and Kaylee looked at me and I was like, because Cinderella and cinders and chimneys, Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. And... All credit to Kaylee. She let me do it. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God bless. This is I'm ruined. I am a broken person because any time I go anywhere else, I'm like, what do you mean? I can't justify this absurd action with (laughs) wordplay.
1: Yeah, so if they, speaking of which, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by supporting the people who support us, and that is Greenleaf Geek. So if you are interested in getting dice from Greenleaf Geek, you can check her out at greenleafgeek.com or at Greenleaf Geek on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to use the code FABLE for 10% off your order. That's F-A-B-L-E. Some restrictions apply.
0: And everyone should know that when I was climbing up a portable hole chimney, I was rolling my Medusa dice from Greenleaf Geek. <laughs>
2: You were.
0: <laughs> because Kaylee also let me play Medusa. So, of course, you know, when you have a theme, you got to rock with the theme. Those are the rules.
1: You got to go with it.
0: Who wants to do a recap? I'm asking so that it can't be me. I can do it.
2: Do <laughs> you want me to do it since I,
1: I, yes. I
0: feel like I talked most of the time?
2: <laughs> you only last time, which, you know, was the whole point. But I can do a recap. I feel like I have an idea of the things that I talked about, probably. What did I say about short term memory again? <laughs>
1: <laughs> short term long term medium term it's a it's a gift and sometimes we wave past it as it goes by yeah
2: you know we do our best uh so last time we talked about bluebeard the fairy tale about the man who marries a bunch of women and then like essentially k- systematically kills them off one by one uh and he's an ugly man with a blue beard, and so he has to bribe women, essentially, into marrying them. And how that fairy tale has a really different perspective if you look at it from, say, a man's point of view versus, like, a more femme point of view. Mm-hmm. And reasons why that might be, uh, starting with the history of of the story and talking about... The author, Charles Perrault, and his relationship with his own daughter, which was very contentious to the point that frustrated me very much. And I had to spend hours and hours and hours on the Internet justifying her name.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't feel like we ever really addressed the fact that Bluebeard not only kills his past wives, which, okay, fine. You're a fictional character. Do your murder thing, I guess. <laughs> he keeps them... In a closet that is covered in blood and just bodies Mm -hmm. laying around. Like, that is a particular kind of fictional murderer.
1: And something I don't think we talked about, but I'm really curious. Would he have killed the unnamed protagonist of the story you told last week had she never opened the closet?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. That's always a question I think is really interesting because I think that absolutely, I think that he would have essentially manipulated her into breaking his one rule so that he mm-hmm. could kill her. I think the point is to marry them and kill them because while Charles Perrault didn't have the language for it at the time, like, he, Bluebeard is written like serial killer mm-hmm. who's keeping trophies and, and, you know, doing his true crime thing. And, like, he he needs to kill these women.
1: He needs to. Okay. Okay. So your take is he definitely would. Yeah. I'm curious to explore a version where where he wouldn't, but I like the idea of he – I agree. I actually think no matter what, he would manipulate the circumstances so that she would always fail.
2: Because I think also if she hadn't done the one thing that the other women had done that caused their deaths, which means that her life would be saved, it puts so much on her. And it like it's oh, almost yeah. as though – yeah, it's like, okay, well then – Again, Like, the story is structured in its original form as such a victim-blaming patriarchal moment that, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I, I need to see it also, like, as, as me, I need to see it as as he would
0: have done it anyway. It's so interesting to me that Bluebeard isn't Redbeard. Like, oh, you know, he has this awful red beard and no one likes it, but it's really because he just, like
1: washes his beard in blood
0: and then it would more mm. closely align with um i don't know like a red cap kind of yeah uh,
1: yeah i could see it just only from the perspective of um blue being an unnatural color of hair like there's something inherently not natural about it whereas like people have red beards that's a thing that many humans have so i think it would have to be you'd have to if you were going to do red beard it'd have to be very described as like modeled and grotesque in the bloodiness of it It would make it more disgusting though i i think like if you see a dude with a blue glitter beard like that's a look i'm into so i don't understand everyone being so against this blue beard nonsense
0: yeah it is i cannot get off that idea like oh we don't want to marry him because he has a blue beard and that's because in 2021 like colorfully dyed hair is often a signal that hey i am i am part of counterculture i'm part of queer culture i am a safe ally and in that scenario it's the opposite and maybe it's that idea of you know a lot of venomous creatures have are brightly colored it's kind of going to that
1: it's why it feels to me like it's such a strong allegory for racism Yes. Everyone hates him because he's a blue beard. Because really, it's just he's othered. He's othered.
2: And then it gets more complicated when oh, and we're gonna also give him a scimitar specifically in this translation, which yes. isn't the way. It's not. That's not uh, from what I was looking at. It's that's not the original French. Because from from the the book that I was reading, that's all about you know uh, the translation of of Charles Perrault and Mother Goose specifically, and how what things are lost. Is he? It, from what I could tell, Bluebeard is supposed to be an eccentric French nobleman because mm-hmm. because it is it is specifically focused on cautionary tales for young noblewomen
1: mm-hmm. who
2: at that time would not have been a quote-unquote appropriate because of racism and xenophobia. It would not have been appropriate for them to be ha- having matches set up with uh partners that that were from middle east or north africa or or South Asia then just then it was that was not his target audience necessarily and like again the the princess that was the like the person that he dedicated the collection to she ended up marrying the duke of Lorraine, who was in mm-hmm. who was a French nobleman, so it was all. Like there's there's extra layers to that. And I think because so many translations just really leaned in and like oh, there's so much art uh, about Bluebeard that really does, uh, you know, it usually depicts him in either like some kind of like head wrapper turban or something and the scimitar and his home is usually draped in silks and it's all very coated. So then mm, we just have okay. that in our brains. Like right. that is something that like we are we've been exposed to that for a really long time. And so going back to the beginning, we're like, no, the attention was probably just kind of a French nobleman weirdo. And it was um, uh, other tales of time, like like Silver Nose, right? He is just like a it's almost exactly the same tale, but he has a he doesn't have a nose. He's got like a fake silver nose.
1: Oh, hmm. okay, okay, okay. Or the
2: robber bridegroom who was just kind of like a rough and tumble guy. That one's a more complex story than than Bluebeard, but it is a similar one, and that's a that's a Grimm's fairy tales one. But that's the, usually when people bring up Bluebeard, they also bring up Silvernose and the robber bridegroom as like the tales that are close to the same. Like they're all kind of like, in the same family. Uh, but Silvernose and robber bridegroom, she doesn't depend on her brothers or her family. She does mm-hmm.
0: save herself. If he does just, in fact, have blue hair, it reminds me, and this is because I'm rewatching the show and you Kaylee, are watching it now, of Mr. Lyle from Penny Dreadful. Mm -hmm. How Mm -hmm. the fact that he has that orange tinged hair that's clearly dyed is one of the ways that he signals as an individual and the show signals that he is outside of the rules of
1: how people okay. in society
0: traditionally want to appear yeah that
2: makes me think though uh because and this is something that i think about a lot as far as like dyed hair being a a, a clue to ca- that someone is a member of the counterculture and possibly safer than somebody who is not mm-hmm. uh the story that i mentioned bones by francesca leah block the character of the in this urban retelling of bluebeard he has blue hair so he's mm. dyed hair, he is part of the music industry, he's a producer, and he's got his, you know, he's got tattoos and he's he's part of this counterculture, but but he's still a predator.
0: So in that case, it's camouflage. Correct. Who knew that we could make an entire podcast episode about hair and its colors and how it relates <laughs> to society and its rules, or lack thereof?
1: Yeah, as someone who <laughs> recently had blue hair, I resent his taking of it. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: I mean, and, but once, once the signals in subcultures, especially subcultures that are created by minorities and other vulnerable groups, get co-opted mm-hmm. by a majority group, it can, it can become very, very dangerous. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it.
0: That's a big conversation right now with corporations having such a large presence during Pride Month and how mm-hmm. they just churn out rainbows rainbow shirts rainbow coffee cups rainbow whatever and at the same time many of those corporations donate to anti lgbtq plus organizations right. so they are co-opting the, the you know the safe symbol of the rainbow and using right. it to their own benefit
1: but then there's an argument to be made on the other side and i wrote a whole paper about this in college once of does it preclude moving the dial forward from a cultural perspective to have that normalized for people to see and be comfortable with. But what I talked about in the original paper I wrote was when Dove had their whole like true beauty campaign Mm -hmm. and arguing, basically my argument was they are a company. They do not have the customer's best interest at heart. They have their own interest at best, best interest at heart, but there is something to be said for if the thing you're pushing is now comfort in your in yourself that's not necessarily a bad thing given that all the ways that we are controlled by companies
0: tracy wielding the sword of context and the dagger of nuance
1: (laughs) (laughs) i just kiss my biceps context and nuance (laughs) i love it
0: (laughs) all right where are we picking up in this menagerie of context and nuance now
2: so where last we left our heroes it was mostly i i i had to i had to just really hyper fixate on the fact that 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 charles perot's daughter who ostensibly was the a focus for all of these tales cannot be found because she you know, committed the great crime of trying to have financial security on her own without as as a as a member of the Perot family instead of seeking security in marriage. Uh, and talking about who these tales are directed at. Is it, you know, this wonderful Mademoiselle, the princess of uh, King Louis the court? Was it Marie Madeleine Perot the estranged daughter? Was it kind of like a mix of the two as this ideal figure? Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's, you know, yes, it's both, it it's a combination of a lot of things, but I also really wanted to kind of dig into not just who these stories were for, but who these stories were about. Mm-hmm. And that, like, so who like who was Bluebeard to Charles Perrault? Uh, and so many people associate Bluebeard with Connemore the Accursed, uh, who's from Brittany, and uh that, that story is kind of confusing because it's also mostly folklore at this point. Like, Conmore mm-hmm. the Accursed absolutely existed. That is a historical figure. But everything is shrouded in folklore. And the folklore sounds a lot like Bluebeard. So I, I was having trouble parsing out, like, which came first, Bluebeard or the folklore surrounding Conmore. Okay. Because, you know, it's all like, eh, I don't really know. Because, um, like, this guy married a bunch. Definitely part of the, the folklore is married a bunch of wives and killed them. When they became pregnant, because it was I was told that my child would be the death of mm. me. Which, again, is like, okay, well, that's a storyline that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot in Greco-Roman mythology as well. Um, also, they, there's a lot of things that put on Conmore the Curse. He's also apparently a werewolf. Yes.
1: Love Good. that for him. Great work, bud. Yeah.
2: Um, and he's also potentially the... The villain in Tristan and Isolde is supposed to be based on hmm. him. So this oh, guy feels okay. kind of like the catch-all for a lot of stuff. And I mm-hmm. couldn't – it's it was difficult for me and I just – I was too busy. For, I was way too focused on marie Madeleine Perrault to go deep dive into Codmore as much as perhaps he deserves. I don't really know. There's like a lot going on there. Um, but – The other influence, and the one that people bring up the most, is fascinating. And it's just because, like, the twists and turns of the story are kind of fun for me. Uh, So I wanted to spend some time on him instead. Uh, Again, gonna just put a little content warning out there for friends and fam. Uh, This story contains a lot of references to uh, sexual assault and harm to children specifically. So if that is a problem, which... It absolutely is a problem. But if it's something that is going to harm you, please take a break. Uh, and uh, we'll catch it. We'll catch it soon. So popular theory uh, is that Bluebeard for Charles Perrault, was based on Gilles de Ray, who was actually a knight and companion of Joan of Arc.
0: Mm. Okay. ok,.
2: So he like had his uh, rebellious war hero moment. And then went back home and allegedly raped and murdered a a large number of young children, mostly boys, in 15th century France.
1: Ooh. Went from a real high of, like, I am with Joan of Arc on this mission from God to a real low. Yeah. That's a fascinatingly
0: complex character. To a character meaning a person. (laughs) Right.
1: I mean, ideally, like, you know, if we were, like, I, I hope he's, I hope it's mostly fiction. That would be great.
2: That's absolutely the thing, is because there – I was – when I was doing this research, there are wildly conflicting accounts of how many victims. Like, uh, Atlas Obscura says it's 150, and then Jean Benedetti in his uh, 1971 biography, like, which is just Jules DeRay, is it just called it a large but unknown number. Some mm. even estimated up to
1: 600 children, which is just – that's too many. That's a lot. That's too many. Like – To not get caught after 600, like, that's... That's the
0: same thing we talked about with Elizabeth Bathory. Like, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: first of all, the number doesn't have to be massive for it to be terrible. You don't Mm -hmm. have to keep increasing Mm -hmm. the awfulness of the story. And when people talk about figures like that, I feel like they get caught so often on, like, the first layer of discussion, which is, like, assaulting and killing children is awful. Like, yes, we all know that. Like, So whether
2: it's six or 600, it's, it's, it's equal, it's bad. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: And discussing this person in depth requires you to go deeper than just that like first layer of like, clearly that is terrible. This person Mm -hmm. is the villain, whether it is real or fictional. Right. And,
2: uh, and the, like the biography then in the, from the seventies We'll go like goes on to just recount like the confessions of Duray and his accomplices and, and they describe the horrible things they did, these murders and, and the torture in such like lurid detail oh. that it says that the judges actually struck the worst parts from the record. It was so bad that the judges were just like, we're not even comfortable putting the rest of this in writing. And, and the stuff that I was already able to read is so disturbing that I'm not going to recount it. I don't think it's uh, important. They're just horrific descriptions of the terrible things that people did to young children. And cool. I
1: appreciate that. If you are
2: curious, it is available on the internet. But it's just everything about those retellings are just so like they are very sensationalized. They feel very ex- exploitative. Mm-hmm. There's maybe maybe a mention of a single's victim, a single victim's last name. But that's it. Like, everything else, like, there's no names of, of, of these children uh, or their families or their accusers even. It's just Gilles DeRay and his, just, like, the depravity and, and uh, everything he did. Which, like, when you stop and think about it, feels a little suspicious. Yes. 100%. Yeah, it's not
1: great. Mm-hmm.
2: Like, so, in 1992, uh, after being commissioned by the Breton Tourist Board, because this, again, it was another historical figure who was in Brittany. This guy got commissioned to to write a new biography of Dre, you know, bringing that, like, a good, good true crime serial killer money,
1: tourism. About, oh, yeah. yeah. Right at that true crime peak in the 90s, for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Gilbert Proteau started doing research, and actually, instead of writing this biography of this serial killer, it was really, really sensationalized to bring people serial killer tourists over to Brittany which you know happens all the time I guess mm-hmm. he made the case that Gilles de Ray was innocent.
0: Yes, there it what? is. That is that's, the thing I was looking for. I knew it. Yeah. Yeah. He he did a bunch <laughs> of research it was actually like, hang on a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. And
2: it got to the point where they uh they brought it to the highest court of appeals in France. And okay. Gilles de Ray was fully exonerated post-mortem, obviously, fully exonerated by the highest court of appeals in France. And and most – it's wild.
1: It was really clear that he was innocent then at that point.
2: Everybody thinks so. But if you if you do, like, you know, just a casual Google search, most people will be like, oh, yeah, Bluebeard is based on Gilles DeRay, who was a serial killer. Like, that's – like, it's not something that is – even though most historians, essentially all – most of them agree – that this was a way to discredit and villainize him because of his associations with Joan of Arc, the same way that she was accused oh. of heresy and witchcraft. He was mm-hmm. accused of the worst thing that, that
0: anyone could think that a man could do. It, okay, there are a couple interesting things happening in this, in especially in the scope of Bluebeard. So, Kaylee, wisely, you talked about Bluebeard and his association with racism and how it has evolved through history. And now we can look at how racism racism is tied to it and that's incredibly valuable and it's a useful way to tell the story and we can acknowledge that maybe it wasn't there to begin with and that doesn't make the mm-hmm. value any less relevant and so in this story we have this figure it's so easy and convenient for everyone to jump on him being a wild murderer because you you instantly get that credit that liberal good guy defending the right like oh yeah he's a child murderer i can hang my hat there but it's it is still a valuable story it, with its place in society and why we're interested in it and why we went into so much detail and why people really dug into it even if he's innocent and in fact possibly more so yeah i'm i'm so interested in the layers of this Bluebeard story and this Gilles de Ray story and like what was there at the beginning and how that is useful and what we all put on it and how that is useful no matter where it came from yeah absolutely
1: yeah you know me I for, I'm a big death of the author person I think that stories belong to the ones who are consuming it
0: mm-hmm. so
1: whether or not you know like we said whether or not there are racist undertones were meant to be there in the original and it was really just supposed to be about a French noble. As the years have gone on, the audiences who are consuming the story see it differently. And that still is valid. And I've always felt that way. I really believe that, like I said, once you give a story out into the world, it belongs to the world.
0: Yeah. I think it makes it more valid that it wasn't there to begin with because it tells us more that it came about later. Like, why did it come about later? Who put it there? And. I want okay. I need to know more about Gilles de Ray because I'm more interested in the fact that someone put that narrative on him than it having been there to begin with.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and so Proto, like he did a bunch of research, and and the most like compelling uh, argument for this like conspiracy essentially by the both the church and the French government to paint this man as a uh, a serial killer. Again, just to discredit him and Joan of Arc,
1: mm-hmm.
2: was that there's no there's no physical evidence. There were like zero human remains found near the property, which like, for a French noble who was essentially just like a god on his lands, there would mm-hmm. be no reason for him to be that intensely careful about hiding evidence. Like it wouldn't, especially if it's supposed to be like six hundred children. It would it would have been next to impossible for there to be zero physical evidence. And then there's another – the reason, honestly, that I bring Gilles Deray up is because uh, there's an, another researcher. Her name is Margot Kajubi, and she calls herself – she's the self-professed Gilles Deray representative on Earth. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> which – I, oh my god, I love her so much. It's, she calls most of the evidence dust and moonlight. No suspicious remains were ever found at the estate, which, like, even conservatively for 150 murders doesn't seem likely. He wouldn't have needed to hide the t- hide at the time. And this, like, this woman is, is incredible. She found a book about DeRay in 2010 and just dedicated her life to spreading the message that he wasn't Bluebeard. So she started the website called Gilles was innocent.blogspot.com and has consistently updated it for 11 years.
1: God bless. That reminds yes. me of, there's a documentary about how they found the remains of Richard III in a parking lot in England. Yeah. And in that documentary, they interviewed this woman who's just inexplicably, deeply obsessed with him. Like there's just those people who, who you just sometimes you just latch on to a historical figure, and that's your purpose. It's also like the, the woman who discovered Ann Lister's diaries and was like, My new life goal is to talk about what an out and proud lesbian this woman was in her own time. And her, it was her family who covered it up. I love these people, I live for these people.
0: Yeah,
2: I was on her website a lot. And uh, her bio on the blog just says, Currently engaged upon a quixotic project to fully rehabilitate (laughs) Gilles DeRay. He was retried and acquitted in 1992. Too few people currently know that. And if that doesn't
0: just give off pure, willing and fable energy, I do not know what does. (laughs) The the do-it-for-the-children narrative here is just so, like, stereotypically perfect. Uh, Do-it-for-the-children is the bane of my existence. Like, that's... One of the pinnacles of the satanic panic, F- freaking mm-hmm. stranger danger, everybody, everybody can get excited about do it for the children. And it is so easily co-opted into very manipulative stories. And I love this woman because she has taken on a do it for the children battle. And that is no easy task. It really <laughs> isn't.
1: I love anyone describing themselves as being engaged in a quixotic project or goal I just think that is so charming it's so great
2: and like she doesn't ever discount the fact that atrocities like this probably happened during that time and like still happen now and and you know that violence she never discounts the fact that violence exists she just doesn't think that DeRay specifically was one of the perpetrators Mm -hmm. but again like Perot didn't know that He was a true crime nerd and just took like, he was a medieval true crime nerd and was like, oh yeah, the serial killer, like this is something that we need to warn our children about and wrote a whole story about it.
0: It's very similar to the problem we have in discussing sex trafficking right now. The true crime community loves to really get Fired up about sex trafficking because it always happens to vulnerable white women in the parking lots of Targets and Walmarts. And in fact, that's not true. And we do need Mm -hmm. to discuss sex trafficking, but it's in exactly the opposite place that the media would love us to look. It's people who are being groomed. It's unfortunately more common for people of color to be sex trafficked. Mm -hmm. And saying that the version that is common is not true does not mean that the actual
1: circumstances don't need to be changed.
0: Sorry, I'm heated. I, oof, I love this, Kaylee. You just...
1: I mean, the media literally is people that go out and look at crimes to find the ones that will get the most media attention. It's how you get your Casey Anthony's. Right. It's how you get all of these white women or missing white children when it is such a smaller population of the people who, who are victims of these crimes. But it's the one that people want to see. So well, it's the ones right. that get all the attention.
0: In this very Twitter-based world, I think it's very difficult for people to say, like, modern-day Gilles Ray. I don't know, didn't do that. That didn't happen. Because then, again, you're put on that side, like, you don't care about the children. And in fact, the more we break out the sort of context and the dagger of nuance, A, the better the story gets, but B, the better the world gets like we can actually tackle <laughs> right. the issues kaylee i feel like you just you promised us dinner but you're actually giving us like also a five-course dessert mm-hmm. <laughs> Ah, it's so
2: cool right as i really and it was again i didn't expect i expected to kind of just like contextualize the story and be like oh yeah he was inspired by this serial killer oh Wait, the serial killer isn't a serial killer. (laughs) Now
1: what? (laughs) You're embodying what Rowan and I talk about when we say we sit down to write an episode about a topic we think we know so much about, only to realize we knew literally nothing about it.
0: I know nothing. I know not one single gosh darn thing.
1: (laughs) No, I've never I've never had a thought.
2: And I was really enjoying it and I really was excited to bring this into it because I know that, that both of you have, you know, an interest in true crime and contextualizing this true crime in this fairy tale and, mm-hmm. and how like perception versus fact and how just entangled everything is, is so interesting to me. But speaking of true crime some more, because it's Willing and Fable and I'm in row and you're here <laughs> and I feel like I have to a little bit, like it's just part of it. There, and you know Perot would be obviously kind of upset about this, but there are solid bluebeard comparisons to you know, some more like modern monsters. Uh, so there, there are two serial killers in recent history who have been termed American bluebeards.
0: I think that's why I know bluebearding. I think that's the only yeah. reason. With mm. mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: something we've been like taught to be worried about.
1: Yeah, um, I feel like I, I you hear so much more about black widows
2: uh-huh, about uh-huh. like.
1: The woman version, which very minimally exists, whereas I think the idea of bluebearding seems a lot more likely and less sensationalized. So I think we talk about it a little bit less than the killer woman.
0: The Black Widow really embodies that kind of Jungian uh, figure of like the devouring mother. It's it's mm-hmm. a very intriguing figure. It's, it's kind of convenient to sexualize. There's this depth to it that media put out by men can kind of mine in the way you can mine the manic pixie dream girl. And, mm-hmm. like, the Bluebeard character is more mineable now that women are controlling more media.
1: Right. Well, it's mineable by women the same way that true crime is mineable by women. Right. right as the potential victims are more likely to be potential potential victims it's that idea of if i can just think through all the possibilities of it i can
0: right and i think it protect myself yeah because previously it's like this isn't interesting this is the standard and women yeah. are now like this is interesting because this is the standard
1: like- <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely so who are these american um bluebeards
2: there are, so there are two and one i guess is technically canadian but uh, j so there's james p watson who murdered at least seven, potentially up to 25 women between 1918 and 1920. And uh, Helmut Schmidt, who also, he killed a a number of of wives in the early 1900s, and nobody really knows how many. Uh, They used the classifieds to lure women into marriages, like promises of love and prosperity, and fairly shortly after, killed them. Um, and the way that they kind of funded these marriages is they would convince the women that they married to sign all of their assets to their mm. husband, then they killed them, took all of their money, and was like, hey, look, I'm a rich man, marry me, and then took all of that wife stuff. So, like, they oh. were really the black widows? It's wild to think about. It, yeah. It was such a mess. And um, James P. Watson, specifically, the reason so many people know so much about him, and they call him the American Bluebeard is because a book was written by like the great niece of one of his victims, who was like my great aunt, or like my like my great grandmother's sister, like disappeared one day and nobody ever know knew what happened to her. And then I started doing research, and then I did more research, and I did more research. And again, I am a woman who has dedicated my life mm-hmm. to understanding what happened, and and now t- talking about this man who changed his name thousand, thousand times. Was arrested for bigamy, <laughs> uh, so just of for course. being married to more than one person at one time. And then, because he finally got caught, he admitted to being also a serial killer. Because they opened up his briefcase and he had all of these trophies. And this was before this was too early for for the language for serial killers mm-hmm. to exist and to under like cuz people just didn't understand why he was keep like why he had all these things and why this was happening and now now we know there's like a common just language and understanding of oh this is a this is a compulsion that some people have. Yeah. Yeah. And and so like that was really fun for me to research as as far as again it was just this woman who took this story about a predatory man, a bluebeard and just the only reason that the, the truth is even available is because of her
0: so that's that's two 25 wives <laughs> Right. <laughs> people just don't get away with serial killing like they used to
1: good lord no even serial killers from the 70s are getting caught now <sighs> thank goodness yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> like i'm very very glad but yeah like 25 women some of his first wife even survived like she was considered one of the lucky ones oh. he just disappeared one day he didn't divorce her or anything
1: oh yeah usually it's like they they ramp up into their crimes so that's not yeah. surprising
2: good for so her So she found out and was like oh okay i guess i don't know i'm putting all of these thoughts into this strange woman's head who's probably gone now <laughs> but i'm just like wow what an experience that's the
1: show we put thoughts into other people's heads and then say them as a story <laughs> right <laughs> 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 I mean, am I wrong? <laughs> <Mm-mm>, nope.
2: <laughs> uh, so I bring up the American Bluebeard, the like actual serial killers, because like the monsters that Perot describes in his in his fairy tales, the Bluebeards, the Wolves, like they're a reality and they have literally always been a reality mm-hmm. for women and fem presenting people that I think that's the reason that people come back to Bluebeard so often. Gives it staying power.
1: Um, Hey, wink, wink. Get out. She said the thing.
2: (laughs) Is that this this monster, this specific monster, is something that we have always been afraid of. And the thing that a lot of like folklorists and and people who analyze the the fairy tale take issue with is that the heroine is blamed for her curiosity and then yeah. needs rescuing which is what we took an issue with also mm-hmm. uh, so there's no agency in the tale and um, maria tadar says in um her book, Classic Fairy Tales, who I'm now obsessed with this person, and I think she's very, very smart. The pro story, by underscoring the heroine's kinship with certain literary, biblical, and mythical figures, most notably Psyche, Eve, and Pandora, gives us a tale that willfully undermines a robust folkloric tradition in which the heroine is a resourceful agent of her own salvation.
0: While well, the Pandora one is particularly interesting because Zeus sets Pandora up in the same right. way that... Bluebeard mm-hmm. is setting up our unnamed heroine. She's right.
2: It's, when we talked about the the other tales that are kind of in the family, um, there's a similar tale in Arabian Nights uh, in Robber Bridegroom. Uh, the, there's the Fitcher Bird. There's the Italian story Silvernose. They all end up with the heroine fighting for her freedom. She outwits her husband and she mm-hmm. rescues herself. She exposes him. And, you know, she, you know, she can have some help, but... The the negative traits, quote unquote, that she has, the, you know, curiosity or disobedience or whatever, those are the skills that she uses to survive the encounter with this monster. But because Burrow was maybe having issues with a curious, disobedient daughter, that's uh, going to color some perspective on the tale and he's going to write a different moral. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like whatever, but whatever opinions he brought to his story, again, in that dedication he wrote to the princess... He encouraged the reader or the listener to, to you know, look between the lines. And since this story was something that was created for and dedicated to women and girls, they really have just taken it and and, and transformed it and they find the relevance that they need. And so we talked about, I think, a little bit uh, last time about how the understanding of the story has evolved through time and people are taking different elements of it and and finding what's important for them. Um, and Marina Warner makes a really good point in a really cool book uh, called From the Beast to the Blonde, um, about all of the different uh, different fairy tales and how understandings of them evolve. When it was written, it Bluebeard was written, it was at a time when arranged marriages were a concern for young women, and specifically the people that Perrault was socializing with in the salons, they were very against them. mm But they were still happening. So Bluebeard and Beauty and the Beast, which Pearl also wrote a version of, um, are kind of two sides of that coin of the concern about arranged marriages. So, you know, a fine, wealthy husband can be a monster and a monster Hmm. can be a fine, kind husband.
1: Right. And so stories
2: like these were used to process the fears about the struggles that they would face from things like age gaps or like difficult or cruel men or intimacy or childbirth or the stresses of running a household. Like these stories were used by women in salons and and other things to center discussions about the real things that they were going to face in a way and just give them kind of just like an on-ramp as time went on. And arranged marriages were less of the issue. Like, still marriage is is a concern for young women, specifically. A lot of interpretations of Bluebeard much later are now more about just focusing on relationships and dynamics with men on a much wider scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, there's, there's a lot of complications with that because also a lot of uh, interpretations of Bluebeard... Later, after Perot died, were used to be very racist and xenophobic.
1: Right, right. But
2: again, that's why we can't have nice things. Um,
1: <laughs> You're not wrong.
2: <laughs> so that's a problem. But uh, again, Maria Tarter wrote a whole book about the ways that people specifically have taken and transformed Bluebeard. It's called Secrets Beyond the Door, the story of Bluebeard and his wives. And it is so interesting. It breaks down like everything from Jane Eyre to Rebecca... To Phantom of the Opera, to mm. just dozens of other, uh, you know, works of film and music and poetry and plays and novels that are all, according to her, trying to address the central themes of trust and fidelity in marriage. So, mm. should a man's past be laid to rest, or does it inform and color his present? When does curiosity shade into snooping in a form of prying that undermines trust? How do two people establish a relationship of which the touchstone is fidelity?
0: I know you have this book, and I will be coming over to uh, snag it from you.
2: Oh yeah, like all the books, all the books that I have mentioned, I now have sneaky,
0: sweepy <laughs> that book away from you. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you please borrow, borrow all these books about fairy tales cuz not all of them are just about bluebeard and there's some really interesting ones about Cinderella, there's some really interesting um commentaries on just uh fairy tales in general and how they're used to help children process specific childhood trauma. So it's just very interesting. Um and I love I love all of these different these different ways that people talk about using stories to just live their lives better because that was always the purpose for these oral traditions.
1: Right. It's always about stepping into someone's shoes for a little bit, whether that's a terrible situation or not. It's the same way that pe- I, to me, it's very similar to how people like to watch horror movies for the catharsis. You read stories about these terrible circumstances so you can imagine what you do in that situation. It's just another perspective of how storytelling can help you think through your world and your life.
0: Yeah. It's also about understanding your own shoes too yeah like it's understanding your own position kaylee you're very insightful would you like to be a guest on our podcast it's called willing and fable we talk a lot i might about- have heard of it once or twice
2: <laughs> you know i think i think i have time in my schedule for yeah i think i think i can i can i can open up some something somewhere <laughs> 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 uh the reason i bring up historic like not historical context but like How historical context affects analysis is that, again, we're talking about, oh, like, let's talk about marriage and fidelity. And and really, that's the that's the concern. I get like that was her concern in 2004, right? It's 2021. And the target audience, I think, has transformed Bluebeard again. And and that's something that I'm really interested in the story isn't about romantic relationships really anymore or just about romantic relationships. And it's not just about men and women. It's about how people in different power structures relate to each other.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Go on.
2: And how that, that can be navigated. So there's this really insightful Jezebel article, um, written by Kelly Faircloth and it's titled something is wrong in this house. How Bluebeard became the definitive fairy tale of our era. Which I, I, in my googling, I, I immediately just like glommed onto it and got very excited about it. Like, hello! <laughs> and she, so she in it she equates the heroine's journey with the Me Too movement and discusses how locked doors and these whisper networks in different industries, specific like you know particularly the entertainment industry and the secrecy around all of it, put people at risk. Uh, mm. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna read I'm gonna read the last part of the article because it just I am still thinking about it. Um, The Weinstein revelations brought so many more awful stories to light. The last year has often felt like an endless hallway of doors swinging open one after another, bloody chambers extending onward into the darkness forever. But how many of those stories had been long rumored? How many women had already known or at least suspected? It has often been the very concept of private that has kept these stories either shut away or trapped in some shadow realm where they go understood but unacknowledged. Perhaps Me Too's biggest upheaval has been dragging these secrets down from the proverbial attic and laying them out in public, an insistence that the domestic home is no longer a place to hide grisly secrets. That confrontational insistence on Witness is a profound violation of many traditional boundaries and the source of so much anxiety about whether the movement has gone too far. And as someone who actually has a Harvey Weinstein story and looks forward to the news of his painful lingering death, I'm like, good, like, we want these secret exposed, like the, the entertainment industry and or any other kind of industry that that depends on on secrets and mm-hmm. whisper networks to keep abusive people, usually men in power. That needs to that needs to be changed. I, it is like <laughs> if the heroine of Bluebeard had followed the rules and kept the secrets and like done the expected acceptable thing,
1: mm-hmm. she
2: would have joined the wives in the locked room. And only by breaking with you know convention or etiquette or whatever and not being a polite, obedient wife sh- and unlocking the door, she saved herself, she revealed the literal skeletons in the closet, and she kept it from happening again.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Looking at it through that lens makes it a perfect allegory for the glass ceiling and how women – And people never discussing their salaries makes it that much easier for women to make less money doing the same job.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Absolutely.
0: It's – this idea of going too far really interests me because we have have such a problem with the phrase cancel culture right now. And it's because Mm -hmm. conservative people who are not on the side of the angels use cancel culture as a way of saying, you know – we're getting canceled for things that don't matter. And unfortunately, we're now also using phrases like cancel culture to apply to people like Harvey Weinstein, who are not being canceled. They're they're receiving consequences for their terrible actions. That is, that is not simply the mere hashtag canceled. And when we equate these, these huge transgressions, these crimes that there are no coming back from... To the the little things where someone says something wrong because they didn't know before. And then, you know, they're taught and then they do better. When we put those two people into the same heading of cancel culture, we have a problem. Yes. Because the, we need teeth to tackle issues like Harvey Weinstein and those teeth being aimed at
1: people who, frankly, just need to learn to do a little better.
0: It... It sticks in my craw.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on my my little soapbox for a second and be very <laughs> transparent about my beliefs on some things. So much of what is happening in the conservative movement right now, you know, Trump supporters, people of that group, they need their arguments to be about words that people use about the, about the cultural miasma, what's going on about the the problem with cancel culture, because when you look at the bills and laws being passed right now by the current administration there's actually an overwhelming not an overwhelming there is a majority of people on both sides of the aisle conservatives and liberals who agree with what the biden administration is passing right now not to make this a political podcast but here we are so when you can't fight and say we don't like that he is giving americans xyz because your constituents agree with that you then have to make your beliefs and ideology about culture not an ideology about politics. So what you then do is get them into outrage. So you get outraged over the changing values. You get outraged over Mr. Potato Head. Made a problem. (laughs) So the idea of getting outraged by cancel culture, where you see a lot of conservatives saying, we're being canceled, we're being canceled, being canceled, is because the barrier for entry into conservatism, the way it is currently today, is that you need to believe in this ideology. Because that is what they can get their base wrapped around because you can't do it about politics anymore. And so it's a lot easier to create a straw man argument of we are being attacked and canceled by the radical left than it is to really face what's actually happening. So jumping off my soapbox, that is why I have a huge issue with the ubiquitous nature of cancel culture and why not digging into the details around the actual thought process behind consequence of people's actions is deeply frustrating and it's because there's a surface level need to keep the outrage culture happening the way it is
0: trace we have a podcast this is a soapbox kaylee <laughs> hi welcome to our podcast this may be your soapbox as well you may say whatever you like <laughs> well and also just like using using
2: those kinds of outrage cycles to delegitimize the actual real important calls for accountability mm-hmm. that vulnerable groups need. Right. To make lives better. For not just that, but like for each other. Like it's and and I I think about this in Bluebeard too, about like the breaking the cycle of abuse. Of Yeah. Like that's by by unlocking the door and doing something about it, our heroine she like she keeps it from having anybody else. She she takes away his power. She has help, especially in Charles Perot's version. Like obviously she doesn't really get to to do to really hold him accountable, but he mm-hmm. is held accountable. Uh and and then nobody nobody else is has to experience those same horrors, which I think is really important. And and Bluebeard is, you know, it's often used as like a condemnation of of curiosity or like snooping. But I think that Especially now, we can look at the story as as that, like, questioning authority and the status quo helps keep predators accountable, and it can be the only way to keep a community safe.
0: You made such a good point. Her having help, saving the day, saving herself, adds value to that narrative. Having help is such a critical part of the story, and I hadn't really put my finger on it until you said it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all about, it's all about coming together to make the world a better place for me at the, at the end of the day is, is, but no one, no one can fight all the dragons alone, Mm -hmm. but you have to know that the dragons exist and you have to know where they are. And the biggest problem for me in a lot of, a lot of industries that are dominated by majority groups are that the secrets that people know about the problems that exist in the industry are what keep those problems in place.
0: Mm-hmm. I heard something interesting the other day, and I, I haven't looked into this, so I do hope it is correct, but I heard that groups of women, specifically groups of older women who were getting together and talking, used to actually be called gossips. That's where the term gossip came from. It's it, That was just the name of that kind of group, and the idea of gossip... Started as not with a negative connotation, but just the idea being an exchanging of information. And it's so interesting to me that when men exchange relevant information about people and the world around them with other men, it's just considered talking. But when women and other minority groups get together and exchange information, it is called gossip and it is condemned. Mm-hmm. And that is such a very, very useful way of putting people in positions where they can't exchange that information without looking bad. And when so much of any industry is based on your relationships, who you know, how you appear, you've basically shut that door. Right. Kaylee come on our podcast (laughs) you brilliant brilliant woman you know i think i will um
2: also i and i can't i can't talk about bluebeard as a gamer without talking about bluebeard's bride um yes which yes oh so just talking about the tensions between, like, fear and and naivete and, and, and responsibility and powerlessness. Um, Strix Beltran, one of the designers, uh, she co- co-created Bluebeard's Bride, the RPG, the role-playing game with Marissa Kelly and Sarah Richardson. She says, I wrote Bluebeard's Bride with two other women, and this is the reason why. Because terrible people have power and they use it in terrible ways. And those of us who have to deal with it have to come to an understanding of what our lives are like in relation to that. If we cannot overcome right now, who are we? What do we do? It's not just a genre. It's that I'm a woman who grew up in the world and this is my lived experience. And so, like, you know, where in – when Charles Perrault wrote it, these women were using Bluebeard to – kind of unpack the powerlessness and the struggle of arranged marriage and their own power dynamics in society then, now we can look at it with essentially the same issues. It's just not arranged marriage that's the lens anymore. Right. And I think that that's the fact that it's still something that we still – it's still such a useful tool for us to to look at our lived experience and, and process it is, is is kind of amazing. And so they they call Bluebeard's Bride – The RPG, a feminine horror game, um, which uh, Richardson kind of contextualizes as horror that specifically engages with women's experiences or women's concerns, whether it's a loved one harming you or impregnation or sexual violence or things of that nature. And you very, very rarely, and honestly, it is mostly in the horror genre, do women get to process their own specific concerns because those concerns are so specific. Mm-hmm. And it is not a horror that men can truly, truly understand. Not like, not really. Those are, they just have different, and like, everybody's different, and there's going to be different concerns. But they're, we have such specific fears that don't get processed a lot unless mm-hmm. it is a, a femme creator. And uh, Bluebeard's Bride is a, it's powered by, it's um it's the powered by the apocalypse system which is a really rules it's rules light it's a really easy mm-hmm. to kind of just jump into and it's the game itself it's a small group of players each take on an aspect of the bride to role play so they're not each their own character they all come together in one personality essentially oh. and they explore the house and retell the tale together experiencing the nightmares within including the spirits of former brides but uh, you you kind of roll to say who's in control of the the body the who's in control of the bride and and they break down the the kind of character archetypes you get to play as the character archetypes that exist for women so like the femme fatale the mother <laughs> the you know, the things like that. And so then you each have these different aspects of yourself and you all come together to form a whole woman, which doesn't exist in traditional necessarily doesn't exist in traditional fiction about women because they they have these separate stereotypes. But then you bring all of together and together you're one person experiencing usually some kind of. Horror or trauma. It's definitely a dark game, but oh god, like the art is incredible and the game design is really affecting and intense. Like I could, I could not recommend it highly enough. And I'm excited to properly play it through. Rowan, we, we, we like we all have to play
0: sometime. It's, uh, it's <laughs> so cool. What an interesting way to add code switching into mm-hmm. a game.
2: Yeah. Um, so the archetypes that she uses are just like the the frequent like cultural tropes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the virgin, the evil stepmother, queens, midwife, mother. Uh, and then everybody gets to come together
1: and play a whole woman. <laughs> that's really cool. I definitely want to check that out. Me
0: trying to assemble the troops when I wake up in the morning. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, but I
0: was inspired
2: by that of the, the spirits of former brides. And so that's kind of the nugget that I took from from the game and just from my research. And I'm I wrote my own retelling of the story. All right. I
0: can't wait. Here's the way I think the
2: fairy tale should go. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see.
1: (laughs) I'm so excited to hear this.
2: The bells are the first sign. Merry things, clamoring and boisterous. The sound was sweet to me once. There have not been many sweetnesses since. The silence is the only comfort, but this time there's an edge to it. A held breath. Waiting. All of us are waiting. My sisters are mostly still now, quiet. But I am the newest. They told me this restlessness would pass as time moved through us. There would be another newest, and another. They would take on this itch for me. But I like this itch. This urge to watch, to witness, to uncover. How poetic that the very thing that caused my end stays with me. The shadow of a shadow. Footsteps. Voices. The telltale scrape of a bolt sliding back, swinging noiselessly on oiled hinges. All of the hinges in this house are meticulously oiled. A private joke, I think, for him. He doesn't need a squeaky hinge to tell him who has crossed a threshold. He crosses the entryway with her in his arms. I can tell, only his heavy boots thump on the rich rug in the hall. She's laughing, delighted. She doesn't know. He sets her down, her soft slippers a whisper next to his thunderous boots. Another delicate one, brave enough to risk marriage to the strangest of strangers, but slight. I was small too. The others can't remember such petty things as appearance, but I remember my fine bones, my own small silk slippers. Then the celebrations. The people, more voices than I could pick out. The clink and clatter of gold dishes and fine silver, clear crystal glasses raised in toast after toast. At my party, he'd presented me with my own shining piano. I'd played and played and played for him. For my guests, my friends. It's covered now, I think. After... I'd heard the telltale swish of a sheet being cast over it. I wonder if she likes music. I cast out what now passes for hands for me, reaching to catch hold of the spider in the corner, twining myself around its long legs, creeping with her to the place where my beloved instrument still stands, tugging at the corner of the sheet with webs and pincers. A guest notices something. Perhaps me. Perhaps a shadow. A trick of candlelight. A piano. Does anyone? And someone does and there is music again, and she laughs, and the laughter and the kindness and the giddiness and the music drown him out, drown us all out, for just a moment. I am together with her in her innocence, her joy. We are the newest. But the music must end. The party must disperse. This old path is trod again. The wheel turns. He must go. Business, of course. And then the telltale jangle like an electric shock up the spine I abandoned long ago. Keys and keys and keys. I've learned the unique melody of each one. The heavy brass ones for the storerooms, the delicate silver ones for the fine china, the thick iron for the lockbox and safe, and the little one, the quiet one. It looks like metal. It isn't. She'll find out soon enough. She won't be able to help herself. None of us could. More footsteps, another scrape of the front door. Guests and companions to join her in her loneliness with her husband away. They won't be enough. I hear her whispering to a sister of her own of the key. The quiet one. The one to the door she must not open, to the place she cannot go. She holds out longer than I did. We all remember that for some reason. The days or hours we wrestled with curiosity and suspicion until there was only one choice left to make. A silk sole on a stone step. And then another. Down and down and down. She pauses once. Hesitates. She turns to climb back, even back to her friends, to her life. But the pull of the door is too strong. I follow, step for step, my arachnid anchor creeping along beside her more quiet. But this silence is like before, the sharp, tight quiet of a held breath, of clinging to the edge of a precipice, the whisper of release as the key twists in the lock, and we all fall. I am dragged from the comfort of my spider steed back behind the clouded eyes of the girl I was before. Through those milky lenses I can see her silhouette frozen in shock I am slumped now, head tilted at an impossible angle, leaning against the shoulders of my sisters, all of us staring through wide, unblinking eyes. She screams. We join her in chorus. Can she hear us, straining to cry out one last time? If not for comfort, perhaps, then catharsis? Can she hear us like we hear the phantom drip, drip, drip? of our lives spilling out onto each other, our fine dresses, our soft hair, the dusty stone floor and the tiny key. Drowning it, smearing her fingertips as she fumbles it back into her grip, slamming the door behind her panic steps. Her gasping breath grows fainter as we are left in darkness again. Sloshing water, the scrape of stone against metal, sobs. That familiar melody of despair, she realizes just how caught she is in his trap. I remember. I scrubbed and scrubbed until my hands were bleeding themselves, adding my own stains to it. Those stains are still there. Thicker now, I suppose. It's drunk from me much more deeply, since. The telltale scrape of a bolt. The front door opens again. Those heavy boots tread toward her. Slow, steady threats. Threats. His booming voice raises, thrumming through us. I can almost hear her heartbeat race. My sisters stir, their spirits finally rousing to the violence. To welcome her. It's time. Her voice rises in prayer. Sister, sister. Is her sibling near? She cannot help. She will join us too. Sister, sister. Again that plea. We all made it to the unseen portraits on the unfeeling walls spending our last breaths alone no one to listen sister sister i am listening the realization feels electric like lightning like life she calls for a sister and i i answer Whipping through the door back to my spider, scurrying along fine-polished floorboards, shaking with impact from his advancing stride, up the silken wallpaper as his blade cuts a singing swish through the air. She's running as best she can, scrambling and stumbling, but there's nowhere for her to go. A thud as she loses her footing, but when she falls, so do I. Down on a wisp of web, directly into his snarling face, tangling in that dark blue beard. He reels back in disgust and shock. Those murderous hands turned on me now. Again. But I have bought her a moment. One more breath. One more chance. A crash as the front door smashes in off its hinges. No need for keys now. More heavy boots, deep commanding voices, and another singing swish. Cut short and changing to that familiar soft, wet, drip, drip. He falls, and I am tangled up in him one last time, bathed in him as he spills out onto the halls he used to rule. Silence again, but for the steadying breaths of the bride. Me and my spider wriggle out from beneath him. Her breath hitches, tears dropping softly onto the stained carpets. She extends a palm out, slowly, carefully lifting me free of the gory mess. I sit with her, my sister. No longer the newest,
1: but the last. Kaylee, that was so good. Oh my god, that was so good. I, first of all, love the telling it kind of like in that um, present tense. That was very, it had that horror feel of like door opening, creaking. Oh, you can tell you are a DM with the way you just... Yoinked us out of reality into that story and had us living in that moment with her. I love the spider steed. Oh, that's the version I want forever and always. How lucky are we that we get our friends
0: to tell us stories? I know. Kaylee, tell Tracy what you told me about your process of writing this, because I I think it's just delightful.
2: Oh right, it was the as I started writing it, I realized I was writing a lot about sound. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I was just going to describe things the way that they sounded until she was back behind her eyes and she could see, but even then she could only kind of see. So everything else – all of the descriptions. I was really careful. It was just like you know, why make things easy on yourself? Right. <laughs> it was. It wasn't. The, it wasn't about the way any of it looked because she. She just. She couldn't see it anymore because mm-hmm. of just the. I decided that as a ghost, she doesn't have the eyesight that way, but she can feel things and she can hear things, and she can remember a little bit.
1: Oh. And so yeah.
2: everything is based
0: off of sound.
1: It came through so clearly in such a visceral way.
0: Was the spider a symbolic choice or just a convenient choice? Because I love the the idea of this woman being so closely associated with a spider.
2: It was kind of both. It was the – I was thinking about – I love the, mm-hmm. the retelling things from different perspectives. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, what would be in this house? Like, it would be the ghost or a spider watching everything and, like, catching things in webs in the way that Bluebeard mm-hmm. was catching these women in webs and – then retaking that and trapping him in a in a web of his own making, um, I thought would be really fun to kind of explore and 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 lean into that symbolism a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. It has the feeling of one of those things where you're writing the story and, and it's telling itself to you, not so much yeah. you making the conscious choice for the story.
0: We are very spoiled by your brain, my dear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. This was such a good episode. I loved ending it with that amazing version of the story.
0: Yeah, after all of this and kind of leaning us down the garden path, thank you for giving us that specifically femme perspective on this. It was it was very gratifying kind of after all mm-hmm. of our outrage. I I needed it too. I really needed it too after all that and just being like, wait, but no –
2: no she saves herself but also it was that like breaking the cycle of abuse and and making sure that you're the last one that these horrible mm-hmm. things happen to i was just so inspired by that and i really wanted i really wanted to give like the next to last the some agency too and like yeah. allow for it to be empowering in a couple of different ways
0: I often wonder if it is a particularly American ideal for people to save themselves, like that pull yourself up by the bootstraps narrative. And I yeah, I so love that this woman was helped by other women, especially in your version. She was helped by the people who were not helped themselves and rather than mm-hmm. kind of continuing that no one helped me idea. Yeah. She... She tried to do better. And I really, I really appreciate that viewpoint because I don't think I would have gone there if I were just left with the first story and I wasn't encouraged to look deeper by you.
1: (laughs) Yes, agreed. Have we done the thing? I think we've done the thing.
2: I think we've done, I think we've done the thing. Y'all, thank you for giving me the opportunity to just like nerd out for pages and pages and pages about this story
1: nerding out about stories is where we live it is what we eat for breakfast lunch and dinner it is such a joy to have a third person on this show who can geek out with us and be as as outraged as we are about the same things and talk about context and nuance (laughs) we love it (laughs) (laughs) all right so again as our guest we're gonna make you go first Kaylee Tell me something good.
2: Uh, Okay, let's see. Something good. I. Uh, well, I'm really looking forward to – I get to – now that a lot of people in my circle and expanded circle are vaccinated, I'm getting to see people in person mm-hmm.
1: again. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and a good work friend of mine who I've never met in person – I started a new job in quarantine. And uh, half the team is on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So they are coming in from the East Coast and I get to meet them and we're all gonna have like a a gathering at my house that I've just like newly freshly decorated and so it's just
0: Oh, that's the it's best. The be- I'm so
2: excited to show off the new the new space. Rowan's gotten to see it a little bit. I'm very excited about it.
0: It feels like a
2: mythical place. It does. It's like stepping into a different world. I'm looking forward to getting to to see people in person that I like very much and it's starting to feel a little normal
1: yeah in a good way it sounds yeah. like well i can't wait until i fly out and get to experience the magical mystery mythical house will you
0: respond most to encouragement or challenge because i either have come on get out here or do it you won't
1: uh, encouragement is probably better okay. if
0: you could <laughs> come out here as soon as humanly possible we would all really appreciate
2: that please come <laughs> out <laughs> Come yes. out. I have bookshelves and, and vintage steamer trunks and... and oh, uh, the vibe I want. So many snacks.
1: I love all those things. All three of those things are three of my favorite things.
0: Kaylee is the queen of snacks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's a compliment from Rowan.
0: Kaylee is one of those perfect people that, like, remembers the kinds of snacks people like and then stocks them all. Like, that is a superpower.
1: That is a superpower. I will say the only other person I've seen like that is Rowan, who when I went out to California, despite not drinking coffee, specifically went out in the morning before I got up to make sure there was coffee for me.
0: That's love. It's because I'm a feral animal. I will only be lured with
1: <laughs> food. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'll add on to called me before I came out to say, what are your favorite foods? I'm at the grocery store. I want them all in my pantry when you're here. You two have that same energy and I love that. <laughs>
0: Neither of us are mothers so our our maternal activity is is snacks. Mhm. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. 100%. Absolutely <laughs> true. All right, Rowan, it's your turn. Tell me something good. My something good this week is I actually
0: had a week where I got to virtually, hang out with my father quite a lot. And that Ooh. was very cool. I am working on my streaming setup and my recording setup. And my dad, who has worked in sound for ages and ages, has just taken so much time to teach me things and get online and help me, like, struggle through the all the little details and things that I have difficulty with. And I got the opportunity to test out a few different microphones and that Mm -hmm. is such a fun time and it was really only fun because my dad like taught me how to enjoy it like he told me where to look for the joy Mm -hmm. and he gave me the tools to have it be easy enough that I could enjoy it um, so what I was previously looking at like a, an absolute slog and a chore just kind of became me getting to goof around with microphones, which like I have a podcast that should be like the best activity ever. And I was so worried about it. And it was <laughs> no, I feel then that. the best activity. And I I feel so grateful, A, because my dad was just like peak dad, just doing mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. most like him stuff but also i'm very i'm very grateful that he like took the time and the energy to teach me where to look for fun
1: mm-hmm.
0: because i think sometimes when people are trying to help you and like educate you and when they have this breadth of knowledge they don't necessarily always like tell you where to look for the good stuff and i think right. i miss that sometimes and that was just such a gift such a gift
1: That sounds lovely. And I'm so happy for you because I knew that chore was stressing you out. So I'm glad to hear on the other side of it, it turned out to be a fun thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. All you. (laughs) Um, Tracy, tell me something good.
1: All right. My something good is a small thing. I got to see my nephews, who I adore. Kaylee, I have a four and a half year old nephew and a two year old nephew. And uh, for Mother's Day weekend, they came up to my parents' house. So I got to go over there and see them. And I love seeing my sister and my brother-in-law. They're a delight. But truly, those little tiny humans are the light of my life. And we took them to a nearby farm. And they got to see horses and goats and chickens and little kids experiencing things for the first time. Just the – is the best. So we had grass nearby that they could hold out and feed to the goats and – the joy on little Oliver's face, seeing an animal eat out of his hand that wasn't his own family dog for the first time, was just the giggle, the joy. Um, it was just, it was absolutely heaven. And he has this what we call his supervillain laugh, where he literally just goes like, and <laughs> <gasps> he like little oh my God. evil way. So him running around thinking he's sneaking, like he's he's like, oh, I'm not supposed to feed the, because he's like not supposed to like give his dog food like from his place so he's just like <laughs> running around <laughs> sneaking and uh, the horses are like eight times the size of this little dude and he is just fearless and then um his older brother was m- like more interested in like looking at the chickens and watching the goats from afar and so it was just to see the different ways they interact with the animals was so much fun and it just i don't know getting to be the fun cool aunt who carries them around and shows them animals is all i ever want to be in life
0: fun cool aunt is like for me that is the
1: dream like yeah yeah it's the energy i love having
0: i feel like the fun cool aunt gets to like when kids are a little bit older like be like here's the secrets yeah yeah here let me help you unlock the universe and and no consequences
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i give them back (laughs) the problem is that i am one of five daughters so i'm you know there's four aunts that they have just from us and then my brother-in-law has a sister who is cooler than all of us put together so my chances of getting to be the cool aunt slim but just a cool aunt that's what that's my sweet spot just being a cool aunt is the where I land
0: oh I get to be the cool one I get to be the cool one oh, wait, yeah. you have yes. one sister okay so I'm an only child and I don't have Any siblings, and I'm going to need y'all to either just let me participate while you're being a cool aunt or Mm -hmm. facilitate me moving out into the woods and being the hag who, like, is cool to children.
1: Both. Both, baby, both. That's what we've established this episode. You can have it all. Reach for the stars.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Reach for the stars. (laughs) <laughs> no reach for the moon even if you miss you'll land out in, in the, the woods, woods with the local hack
2: <laughs> you know that's my eventual dream
1: we gotta end it there everyone thank you so much for joining us and remember stories grow with the telling so if you like what we do tell a friend kaylee say telephone
0: oh okay oh or telephone and we'll see you soon okay thank you so much for joining us for the willing and fable podcast this episode was written and produced by tracy harrison and rowan hall that's me our music was written and performed by taylor ash and our logo is by jamie harrison if you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willinginfable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.